Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So you, you might have been confused by hearing the bell ring only once uh, because you've already been highly conditioned uh, for a three ring of the bell. But uh, actually I did that intentionally because um, there's a way in which uh, it can be helpful to listen to Dhamma talks uh, kind of from the space that you are in uh, of practice. So with a steady mind and uh, openness. And just allowing the words, the sounds to come in and then let them pass away. So. Uh, what's useful hopefully will uh, take root in some way and all the rest of the stuff you can just let it go so however that is for you you want to keep your eyes open keep your eyes closed experiment uh, is good I'm not going to throw things today though so if you have your eyes closed you won't miss anything So we've had the chance to speak to uh, all of you, I think, in uh, practice meetings at this point. And it's always interesting to hear how much people are learning, and really from all different aspects of the retreat. So some people reporting you know, the most interesting things and learning in sitting practice, some people feeling like a walking practice, some people talking about their work practice, cleaning or working in the kitchen, getting a lot of insight from that. Uh, Some people saying from nature, and even just all the in-between times too. So it's a sign that even though we have somewhat of a structure in the retreat, uh, it looks like a schedule where certain things are happening and uh, there's some order to it. And there's actually some mystery to the whole thing. I have a lot of trust in the practice and in this container, and this ancient recipe for awakening that we spoke about in the beginning. So I was telling uh, my colleagues here that one of the uh, ways that I see my role sometimes as a Dhamma teacher is as like a Dharma sheepdog. Uh, so basically just to like herd you onto the field of the Dharma. And uh, mostly as long as you're kind of practicing is good. And if someone gets a little straying from the field, then I have to bark and nip a little bit at the heels and then, then mostly keep the, <laughs> the herd on the field, you know. And I thought I'd share with you some different um, perspectives on what it is that we might be doing here. You yourself might have gone through uh, many different ideas, even since the time you signed up for the retreat, the time you arrived, and uh, even uh, now, on like what, what this is about. 
You know, what's going on here? So I'll share a number of perspectives on it, and you can just hold or uh, work with the one that seems useful to you, and the rest, um, please just feel free to let them go. At some point I had uh, called this talk 13 Ways of Looking at Dharma Practice, but I think the number has increased or decreased since then, so I won't be as specific about (laughs) how many we can share. So one thing a number of people uh, reported in the meetings was that uh, they noticed that they had very vivid dreams on retreat, and even uh, some very disturbing dreams like uh, nightmares or uh, unusual dreams, psychedelic dreams, and you know, weren't sure what to make of that. And uh, to me, this is a sign that uh, we are kind of in this uh, field that is uh, kind of this cauldron of purification. And this, this process of um, this kind of meditation has been called a, a process of purification of the heart and mind. So through the practices we're doing of collecting the attention, of directing it with awareness, of living in a community with uh, some integrity um, by conserving energy, by not speaking or taking in other uh, media, we're actually putting ourselves in this, uh, yeah, cauldron is something that comes to me of uh, the purification is like the, the impurities or chaos or kind of knots of the mind and heart having a chance to sort of like unwind or uh, unravel or spark out or something like that. And so this happens both during the day but also uh, during the night. And there's probably a combination of you being um, you know, more aware, like the mindfulness has developed, so you're more aware of what your dreams are but also in this purification process, it's like um, this stuff is getting released in some way. So you could consider it like it doesn't have to be disturbing. The thoughts that come up in the day or in the night uh, can be regarded as not your own. You know. So kind of like if the uh, clothes are put on a washing machine and then the water gets dirty, you know, there's an agitation cycle, and then that helps to dislodge the dirt. Um, but you don't have to worry the water is getting dirty, it's all going to drain out. So all those different thoughts and sparks and stuff. You know. So this can uh, happen uh, during the day also. And you're sitting, you might have noticed, uh, many people report that they start to remember um, like things that they did from the past that uh, now they regret. So maybe like something that you said or did. And sometimes it starts with fairly recent stuff, but then it goes like way, way back. So you can start to remember stuff from like childhood and uh, things people did to you and things you did to people. And, you know. So when this comes up, it uh, can be helpful to recognize it. And actually, if there's something that you did that was um, unskillful, uh, to recognize that remorse is actually considered a wholesome feeling. So to recognize with wisdom, like, yeah, this was not a good thing to do. Um, but then to let it go, 
right? Like, let this drain out also. If there's anything to be learned about the circumstances of that, like, I, I said that thing because I was really scared or uh, I was really um, hurt at that time, uh, I was suffering a lot, then, yeah, get that lesson what you can, but then uh, let it go. So skillful ways not to keep flagellating yourself for it, but consider this sort of part of the process of purification as part of the kind of alignment that's happening as these ways in which we've been misaligned uh, become more obvious. So to the uh, dreams again, there's something that uh, can be helpful to consider about the way that we relate to dreams, I think. And it can be instructive for us uh, regarding um, how we might relate to thoughts during our waking life. So usually if you have a dream, um, maybe you remember that, and the next morning you might think like, oh yeah, I'm this dream, and I was in the jungle, and I was an animal, and like, I was being chased, and uh, then like I went into space, and, you know, like whatever the wackiness of the dream, but you don't actually think you were this animal, right? So once you wake up, you have this sense like, oh, this was sort of like some visitation. Like we don't identify with the thoughts at night, the dreams, as strongly in some way. Uh, There may be an identification with the receiver of the thoughts, the observer, but uh, we don't identify as much with the thought itself. We don't believe it literally. Maybe we get some sense from it a little like, oh, there's some uh, anxiety or this or that, but... uh, we don't feel like we have to like go and fulfill what that nocturnal thought was of running through the jungle or you know finding a spaceship or whatever. Right? So similarly, we could relate to our waking thoughts like that. And when you pay attention to the fact that you're just sitting here, like minding your own business, breathing, not really inviting any thoughts in, actually that which visits you during the daytime. Uh, even though it may be more familiar, and because of that we have a greater sense of identity around it, uh, it's actually equally not you. It's equally, equally sort of a mysterious arising that doesn't need to be taken literally or believed in necessarily. Sometimes there's something worthwhile to understand from that, either kind of a emotional uh, something or even some information, but then you can let it go. It's possible to let it go. So a process of purification, uh, one of the ways in which we can uh, understand what's happening here. And in this, um, you know, it can happen in surprising ways. So this afternoon we did some metta practice, and um, we had some questions in the end um, about... uh, Nobody asked this one, but it's a common one, that sometimes you start doing metta, and then the exact opposite seems to launch. Right? Like you pick someone who you think like you totally adore, uh, and you start wishing well for them, and suddenly this like intense burning hatred for them seems to arise. <laughs> and it's appalling. Right? It's like, oh my gosh, like, how do I, I don't hate grandma, what is this? Like, you know, right? <laughs> So this too is just part of the process of purification, you know. And in some ways, like, if that happens, you could sort of be with that. Uh, you can just let it dissipate, you know, sort of energetically. And then 
uh, come back to the practice of metta. So another metaphor that is used for this sometimes is as if, you know, a heart is like some red-hot beam of steel. And then to cool it down, uh, we're putting water on it. But as the drops of water hit, sometimes there's a little like steam is released, a little sizzle. I could consider sometimes if if this is happening metta, then like okay, this is the sizzle of the cooling of the heart. Yeah, so it's okay just to let that happen. Recognize it also as part of the process, part of nature. <coughs> so the the practices that we're doing here are also um, one part of the eightfold path. Uh, we're particularly practicing the elements of uh, collectedness, of mindfulness, uh, of uh, wise effort, you could say. And we are actually, because we're following the precepts, following the uh, aspects of the uh, path that are around um, action, speech, and even you know, temporarily livelihood, since we're all being like temporary lay monastics, which is considered a wholesome uh, occupation for a few days. And then we're also clarifying our view through things like the Dhamma talks or question answer uh, and cultivating wholesome intention. So uh, it's, it's kind of like a intensive uh, training in these aspects that then when you shift to your regular life in which you're not a temporary monastic, uh, some of them might be less emphasized like the meditation part, but then other pieces will become stronger, like more in focus, like speech, for example, or uh, action, or considering about the work that you do. So all of that we can uh, consider at the end of the retreat more, but just to put it in perspective, there's a way in which um, we've cut out a lot of extraneous, unnecessary activities to uh, allow ourselves to really fully immerse in this eightfold path of awakening. And when uh, I ended the talk, the last time I gave the Bruce Lee quote uh, about practice, and uh, that might appeal to some of you who have a kind of physical uh, physical fitness bent, <laughs> you know, training martial arts bent, right? So uh, under duress, we do not rise to the level of expectations, but we fall to the level of our practice. Right? So uh, one way of thinking about what we're doing too is that it's specifically a mental training. Yeah, so we come to a, like a mental, uh, mental training similar to going on an intensive physical training. And because of that, even though we're you know, sitting and walking and doing these things that seem not that strenuous or unusual, uh, actually the places that the development is happening is in all kinds of different mental factors. You know, we're cultivating a lot of wholesome mental factors all the time in practice. So for example, uh, the conditions of retreat are very conducive to cultivating the collectedness of mind. And this retreat is called the Shamatha Vipassana. So uh, orienting towards allowing the usually disparate energies of our human system uh, to come together in some way. 
And it may be worth saying a little bit more about this um, collectedness that we're talking about. One of the common translations of uh, the word samadhi is concentration. But I think for many of us, that word uh, has some connotations of like bearing down. Like if you're doing a a test with your number two pencil, if that ever happens anymore, like coloring very hard, you know. (laughs) So uh, it's actually not that, and it's easy to fall into that. Particularly when you're given an instruction that's like, oh, uh, train your attention on the breath. So a lot of what happens for people is that they're learning about balanced effort in that way. And you'll find many times that the effort becomes uh, overly strong, and you become tight and tense. And some signs are that it seems really like not fun. It seems like a big drag to pay attention to your breath. And then sometimes totally the effort goes the other way, like totally lax and uh, not really putting any uh, energy towards it. Maybe falling, wafting off to sleep or uh, not really caring, something like that. If either of these describe uh, moments you've had (laughs) during the day-to-day, it's totally fine. And part of learning anything is understanding like what the ranges of this effort, like how it feels, and getting that kind of like direct, personal, tactile understanding on your own. So there's many uh, physical correlations to this. Um, So a basic one is like if you're trying to, um, you know, if someone's like learning how to eat with a fork, small child, and like it actually takes a, a bunch of control to be able to spear a vegetable properly, you know, like a piece of uh, broccoli or cauliflower. Uh, You can see this if you are around little kids who are trying to eat with some uh, utensils kind of early on. So sometimes they might spear it too hard and then it like flies off the table, right? And then sometimes they might try and spear it but it's too soft and it's not getting on the fork. Or uh, for the athletically inclined, um, if you ever try to play basketball, for example, or many other sports like that, it's like, okay, what, what, what's the force it takes to make a free throw? You know, Like if you do it too soft, it doesn't reach the basket. If you do it too hard, it bounces off the backboard. So you kind of learn like what's the right touch to do, you know, how much effort, how much leg strength you want to put in, how much arm strength. So like that with uh, practice, too. It's a very subtle art, uh, meditation. And uh, it's good to be just very patient with oneself in that uh, wobbling or sometimes whacking around from (laughs) the over-efforting to the under-efforting. And as I was saying to uh, someone in our group today, sometimes we have this idea that it's like, okay, I'm going to enter the retreat and from the beginning of the retreat on, then the line of progress is going to be like a steady upward one. (laughs) Or if you want a depth one, it'll be steadily downwards into greater depths of concentration and meditation. But actually this is a very organic, messy, mysterious process, it seems. 
So it really is more like, you know, like multidimensional, <laughs> you know, movements. And uh, many times we don't even know exactly what is the aspect that's being cultivated, but uh, it takes some faith then to trust, like, okay, keep going. It's sometimes equanimity is being developed, a sense of balance with things not going my way. But sometimes it is concentration, which can usually feel more satisfying and like you're uh, with the program or something. Sometimes it's being able to expand, to open to greater sense of suffering. Or being able to have balance to open to unpleasant sensation. This usually doesn't feel like it's with the program. And oftentimes we feel like it's a mistake, and how do we get back? But this goes to another perspective that could be there on um, practice. And one of the framings that the Buddha really talked about um, a lot was about uh, suffering and the end of suffering. You know, dukkha, this word in Pali which means strain, stress, difficulty, all of the different challenges that we have as human beings. And the first of these four noble truths is about um, understanding the suffering. So actually knowing this deeply, being able to open to and recognize the truth of this uh, for all of us. And this is hard. You know, this is difficult to do. And we don't advertise the retreats really as come here and become intimate with your suffering. Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) I think there's really a way in which, uh, not all the time, but much of the time for many people, that's a very... Uh, profound and important aspect of the practice. So we're becoming very uh, honest with ourselves. We're starting to open to what's true, minus being able to dodge with our usual escapes of calling someone or TV or uh, getting a drink, alcohol, something. So we don't even have to do much to like machinate suffering for you. Like someone pointed out, this is actually a very cushy retreat center, relatively speaking. Yeah. Um, compared to many uh, you know, Buddhist monasteries, this is like kind of the, uh, the joke is it's like the upper middle way, you know, it's like the, uh, the <laughs> California version of, uh, of, of retreat, right? So we don't make you sit for like extremely long sittings. We have all these different cushions and stuff. You know, even now, like I have a little cushion on my lap, happy, my hands happy. Um, but still, uh, I'm sure you can attest to the fact that that does not mean that you have been able to escape suffering, right? Uh, physical suffering, mental suffering, noticing the movements of the mind that are uh, causing you grief, distress, sorrow, all of this stuff. And one of the aspects of uh, the Buddhist teachings that I find very um, like resonant is that 
these similar understandings about our human life uh, have been the same for uh, 2,600 years. So I've uh, read a lot of the translations of the stories of the Buddha in his time, and people are coming to him and asking questions and talking about different dilemmas they have. And uh, so many of them are like very, very relatable to what's happening uh, to us now. So despite our technological advancement and, um, yeah, seeming sophistication in some ways, uh, there's a poignancy to recognizing there's something about our human life that's uh, similar, and particularly in ways that life is not in our control, uh, physically, mentally, politically, uh, and that's difficult for us. So one of these uh, stories, uh, someone comes to the Buddha and says, uh, this generation is tangled in a tangle, a tangle within, a tangle without. This generation is tangled in a tangle. Who can untangle this tangle? So it, it kind of, uh, it sounds like something we could ask today, isn't it? <laughs> Internally, externally, like caught in these tangles. So the good news of the Buddha's uh, explanation was basically um, a wise person who practices uh, the path and is able to liberate uh, their heart and mind. So we're on the right path for untangling the tangle. So here's another um, way of looking at practice that sometimes is... uh, helpful is, you know, it's really like a lab for uh, experimentation, for understanding how does this mind and body work? Or who is even this uh, seeming me who decided to come on retreat, came on retreat, etc. So in the lab, there's like simplified conditions. So you take away a lot of complications so you can see uh, what's true. Now, in this metaphor, of course, you are both the uh, lab equipment, <laughs> the scientist and the lab rat, and <laughs> you are the substance in the petri dish. So, so you're the, what you're observing and the observer. Um, but a lot of the things that we say here about the, uh, the teachings, you can uh, check out for yourself. And there's, there's a, also a description of the Dhamma, which is like, Ehipasiko, like come and see-ness about it. So for me that's always been very appealing is that almost everything that you hear, you can like try to check it out in your experience and see if that's true. And mostly this is in the observing how things work. Like what is the cause of suffering? Or uh, this thing about, you know, the creation of stories that Will was talking about last night. Uh, the way in which we select different uh, specific details and create some story of me and then inhabit that story yeah, until we create some different story from different details. <laughs> and the way in which that's constantly happening and we're creating uh, suffering in that way.
so it's good to have some uh, like kindness and compassion for yourself in this. And uh, some people were reporting, you know, uh, some frustration that the mind is still uh, wandering, or uh, they get lost in thought, you know. And sometimes I think uh, about uh, when I'm sitting up here, like, what if we have a retreat, but it was all dogs on the retreat? So, uh, you know, for people, the center of the mind is the one in which we tend to get really, like, hooked in a lot. Like, we don't know, we get lost, right? But for certain breeds of dogs, like beagles, for example, uh, they're totally driven by their nose, right? For, for most people, they can handle the existence of sense without, like, totally losing it, you know? <laughs> but beagles cannot, right? <laughs> So you can imagine if there was like, you know, a rows of hundred beagles here, and then they're trying to practice awareness, you know, like nicely. Maybe they're panting mindfully, right? <laughs> and then some smell would waft through and they would just go, right? Like they would just be gone. We'd have to put little dog doors all over. They would like run out. And then maybe somewhere halfway up the hill, they'd remember like, oh yeah, spirit rock meditation. And they'd sort of dolefully come back in. <laughs> And then plop back down, and then, okay. Right, just try again, try again. And then the next smell would come, and they'd be gone. Different direction, right? And then, oh, right, meditating. Okay, come back. So when you think about, like, if you saw dogs doing that, you would feel some compassion for them, right? Like, they're trying so hard still. (laughs) It's just like, the scents are just, you know, so compelling to them, you know. So, yeah, hopefully you can... You know, if this made you smile, just consider your own mind like this with some kindness. Like, oh yeah, like, this is the habit of the untrained mind. You know, it's just the habit of the untrained mind. And it's, it's good to get interested, you know, a little bit more with investigation and, you know, are there common chases that's going on? Is it pleasant fantasy you're getting sucked into? You know, if it's a repeating storyline, is there some emotional fuel there and all of that? But... Broadly speaking, uh, really just to hold oneself with a lot of kindness, you know, a lot of compassion, uh, because uh, you might be doing better than if you were a beagle, but maybe not. You know, it's okay. Yeah. We're all trainable too, just like beagles. Yeah. So another uh, thing that could be uh, a way of considering what we're doing here is actually that. Uh, Believe it or not, it could be considered very restful to be practicing meditation. I mean, both physically restful, if we're not doing too much heavy lifting stuff, but also um, there's a way in which if you're not overly struggling uh, with the mind, uh, it can be very, um, yeah, like nourishing and restful for our being. all of it, even the walking practice, you know, this gentle walking back and forth and just allowing yourself to simplify, sink in. Some of that is because uh, this collectedness, this samadhi concentration that I was talking about, uh, which I think can better be understood as like a, this collectedness. And um, I remember one of my teachers saying, you know, think about it more like, uh, like orange juice concentrate sort of like the essence of orange juice that comes in a can, right? uh, as opposed to the bearing down concentration, this like collectedness. And 
some of you have already found this, that it's actually very good for our system. You know, it's actually very uh, pleasurable even. Um, but like, we become very happy when the mind and body become uh, collected and concentrated. And it's like a, it's like a natural phenomenon. The, the Buddha talked about this, and it also is something that has uh, borne out over thousands of years, is that as the mind and body collects, there are different levels of well-being and happiness that are available to us uh, that are actually not available to us when we're scattered. In fact, I'll make a radical claim that the um, kind of happiness that's available from the collectedness of this attention uh, actually is better than any kind of sense experience happiness that you could ever find. And I know this from my own experience, from uh, meditative joy, uh, but also from others. Uh, this, This is true. So that means better than the best sex and chocolate cake and music and <laughs> everything. Believe it or not. <laughs> and if you don't believe it, then you could use it as incentive to check it out and see. <laughs> see if what I'm saying is true. Yeah. See if what the Buddha said also is true. So yeah, it's considered, you know, there's different levels of well-being that we can have. And um, even from a basic level of concentration, uh, you actually can enjoy sense experiences better. So that certainly is a certain kind of happiness. And uh, many people can say that, like, oh, the nature is so beautiful here. It's so vivid, the colors. And the food is so good. It's, like, very tasty. Um, the sounds of nature are so beautiful. So that also is a relationship to being present, non-distracted, right? uh, collected, uh, tuned in. Sometimes um, people ask for the recipes for the food that's made here. And um, I remember one of the cooks here made a blog about it. I think it's called like Cook Like a Buddha or something like that. And I remember people would like do the recipes for the stuff, and then they'd be like, but it didn't taste like it did at Spirit Rock. Like, <laughs> like you must have left something out. <laughs> and so we joke, like, oh, yeah, what you left out was mindfulness and concentration. Like, <laughs> that will make the oatmeal tea taste just perfect. It makes even the most simple thing, simple cup of tea, a beautiful experience. So it can be very restful and nourishing for us to uh, find joy in this way, you know, in basics of sense experience, and then in the deeper sense of collectedness that can come from concentration, and then the possibility of the liberation from this purification and heart of mind uh, is even another level of well-being, of uh, happiness that's possible too. I know some people come to this um, practice from some kind of uh, interest in um, mindfulness as stress reduction. And I think that's true, um, that that can be helpful to a certain point, but also, as you probably have experienced, after a certain point, it veers into stress induction. (laughs) As you start to notice more uh, aspects of your mind and body that maybe before you were pushing away. 
So the joke about the insight meditation practice is uh, you get a lot of insight, but in the beginning a lot of it is bad news. Right? <laughs> so you're uh, you know, seeing the parts, aspects of uh, emotions that you didn't want to see, um, maybe even things that you were worried about that you were pushing away, aspects of the physical body that were actually um, already getting tight, but we weren't uh, aware of them. We were being too busy. So we start to open to all of this, but that also can allow the unwinding to happen. So maybe that one, there's a new one, maybe I should call it practice as news. (laughs) Good news, bad news, something like that. So there's a way in which practice can also be uh, felt as a devotional act. And usually this can come about once um, you've had some uh, taste of uh, the power of what there is to be learned from this. Someone asked a question, you know, what are people doing when they're bowing? Right. Um, the bowing uh, here we consider uh, completely optional. So if it feels right to you or natural to you to do it, you can do it. And if you don't want to, that's also totally fine. Uh, the one at the end of the sitting that we do is kind of a recognition of uh, appreciation for each other. Uh, it's kind of an act of um, respect and also kind of a recognition that all of us are uh, doing this practice together with the same potential for awakening. And you could also consider it like a sort of gratitude uh, for all these people for uh, doing this sometimes very challenging activity together. It's actually a very uh, beautiful thing to do with people, uh, even to leave each other alone to go through this process. You know, it's kind of an act of uh, support for each other, an act of uh, love, even. But sometimes as we go on in the practice, we can uh, connect with uh, that there's something larger than technique. Uh, There's something bigger than lists or specifics and uh, in some ways kind of plug into something larger than uh, any of the words can point to. So in this way then sometimes it can feel like a a sacred ritual or uh, some sense of surrender like a paying homage, uh, uh, kind of plugging yourself into the source in some way. And sometimes as part of that, there is a dimension of practice that is really resting with not knowing. And many people have reported at different times that they notice their mind being obsessed by a particular aspect of something like they wanted to know, or they want to plan, they want to figure out. And sometimes that feels like, oh, if only the mind wasn't doing that, my meditation would be good. Like, if only my mind would stop with this uh, stress about this little thing, or whatever. But there's a way in which if we expand out our view of that, that, whatever that little thing is, is kind of a proxy, in some ways, for the fact that we don't know what is going to happen next. Uh, In fact, actually, in any way whatsoever, we assume we do, we think we know. But as we tune in, 
more and more we can recognize like, oh, everything is changing. And it's not changing in some way that is necessarily predictable. Well, there's something that can be amazing and delightful about that. You know, that there's a appearance of different things. Uh, there can be a wonder with all of that. Even sometimes in surprising circumstances, like watching your keys drop into the beautiful green water. Yeah. But this is actually one aspect of the truth of the way things are. And on a very mundane level, for example, it's the truth that um, all of us who are born are going to die. So this is just a fact, right? Um, but it's a fact that we don't think about too much. We don't usually like to think about it. And in the Dharma teachings, you know, because it's oriented towards the truth, um, there's actually a lot of emphasis on uh, intentionally reflecting on this fact. And it's not meant to make you depressed or sad uh, or worried. Um, But in some ways, if you actually knew that you were going to die, you would be paying more attention to when you live. If you knew that is the last time you're going to see your loved one, you would really pay attention and be with them with full loving care. You wouldn't be checking your phone at the same time or like opening the mail while they're telling you how, how they are or something. So the uh, seventh Dalai Lama says this about uh, remembering this. After our birth, we have no freedom to remain even for a minute. We head towards the embrace of death like an athlete running. We may think that we are among the living, but our life is the very highway of death. And then also a recognition that at the time of death, all of our accumulated possessions uh, will not help us. Uh, Our money, our titles. Uh, And just like uh, Bruce Lee said, during these times of duress, what's left will be the quality of the heart and mind to meet this difficult circumstance. So what's also true about death is that we don't know when we're going to die and we don't know how we're going to die. So most of us imagine if we think about our death, uh, it's going to be like laid out nicely with candles around and (laughs) nice music, maybe like in the acupuncturist office or something. And uh, all our loved ones will be there in a nice circle, be quiet and contemplative and... uh, You know, but the truth is, like, we have no idea, right? Like, we really don't have any idea how that's going to play out. Um, It's going to be a surprise, you know. So there's another way in which, very profoundly, this practice is both uh, cultivating a practice of resting with not knowing what's going to happen in any moment, but preparing us both for our death to be present. And thus, because of that, it's preparing us to live well. So we're practicing preparing ourselves through living 
fully in this moment with as much clarity, as much kindness, as much stability of mind as we can. So in many religions, there's this uh, question like, well, what happens when you die? Or, you know, philosophical speculations. And certainly there's some talk about that in uh, Buddhist uh, you know, teachings. But one angle for that question of like, well, what happens when you die? Uh, the response is like, well, what happens when you live? Like, can we answer that question? And, and answer that question, uh, not with words or poetry, but actually uh, with presence. So there's a way in which that's what we have the opportunity to do for the time that we're here. Uh, practice learning how to live. Uh, practicing finding and discovering the happiness that's there at all levels. Uh, practicing the alignment that can come from allowing this mysterious crazy path to play out. So I appreciate all of you for your courage in uh, staying in the cauldron. Uh, and it's a good time in the retreat where you've had a couple of days of momentum of practice. You know, don't believe your ideas if your mind is saying, uh, you didn't do anything, you didn't get anywhere, you don't learn anything. You know. I just keep on going. And it's a very, uh, can be a very fruitful time. Uh, this tonight, tomorrow, Uh, Continue going uh, till the very end, and then you can see what there is to see. So you can just stay in the position that you're in. Let's see if you can shift to feeling your breath. Maybe you can feel your body. You can feel that aliveness, this mysterious aliveness that's here. So with the sound of the bell, you can let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.